So good morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods podcast, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. For our listeners, we're talking to Dr. Tiffany Powell Wiley, the principal investigator of the Powell Wiley Lab. She is a U.S. obesity expert. We talked about there being so many things that affect obesity. And in determining the potential variables associated with obesity-related behavior in daily life, and with respect to body image problems in persons with obesity, it will be especially relevant to measure the emotional component of body image to assess emotional states associated with the perception of self-images by women. It might enlighten how various components of body representation affect behavior. So there was a study by Isabel Yudapileta and her colleagues. The study she labeled women with obesity are not as curvy as they think. Consequences on their everyday life behavior. The authors in these studies described health-related quality of life can be classified into physical and mental or psychological components. And they looked at how women with obesity move and live with their bodies in social space. They looked at how women, number one, with obesity are actively searching for seats in public places where they would not risk encroaching on their neighbors. So when they're in public spaces, they're looking for seats in which they're gonna be alone so that they're not encroaching on a neighbor. Number two, these women, they tended to go through doors or other narrow passages like turnstiles at the metro sideways. Even when they could have gone through front ways, they still turn to the side to go through. Number three, the women, they navigated the environment more cautiously and slowly. They did not take any sharp turns. They rarely moved swiftly and boldly when obstacles were closed or when other people were moving quickly. And number four, they had issues with knowing their correct clothing size and they tended to overestimate their size. In all these situations, women with obesity are reminded in a negative way of their body size, and this is likely to create, sustain, or enhance stigma. How is obesity, apart from its medical implications, also a challenge in performing mundane activities because the built environment designed for normal weight persons present challenges for women with obesity? I think it's, you bring up a very important issue that it should be front and center as we think about addressing the obesity epidemic, and that's the stigma that society creates around having obesity and the difficulty that patients and people with obesity can have in just navigating the, the world. I think one of the first things that we really, that lead to the stigma that exists is that there seems to be this belief that obesity, as long as if you eat less and exercise more, 
it, that's just going to fix everything that it's really about willpower for people and it's and i think the biggest misconception is that it's that obesity is not as complex as it truly is and so i know that i've emphasized a lot about healthy eating and physical activity today but i think it's important to realize that even if you lose weight with healthy eating and physical activity it's extremely difficult if not impossible to keep that weight off with just lifestyle changes and it relates to how your body responds to what happens when you lose weight and so the stigma associated with you know this perception that obesity is something it's all about willpower it's all about people who lack self-control plays into how people are treated in the medical community it plays into how people are treated in their jobs it plays into how spaces are designed as you bring up and it really complicates a very complicated situation where it really limits how we have conversations about what can be done from a clinical perspective or from a policy perspective or even from a environment a built environment perspective how do we make it so that when we think about health policies that we make it clear that if we're addressing obesity it's it's a very complex issue but we don't over stigmatize patients who are dealing with obesity in the medical field if we're talking to patients about treatments how do we make it clear that treatment does not mean that you failed in some way it means that just like you need treatment for your blood pressure or for your blood sugar this is something you will need treatment for but then also how do we think about if we are encouraging people to change their behaviors how do we make it easy for people to live a healthy lifestyle without making it seem as though there's people trying to control what other people do and setting policies that are all about monitoring what people are trying to take over what people do in their lives. And so the stigma piece of obesity is just so critical to really think about and kind of keep at the forefront of how we talk about it. So it is not a simple solution. I think exactly. You, yeah, it's not a simple solution. So regarding the mental or psychological components of obesity, obesity is sometimes associated with depression. Mm -hmm. And we have several studies. There's one by Onyike and his colleagues in 2003, Falcon Bridge and his colleagues in 2018. Obesity is also associated with social discrimination. Mm -hmm. Studies by Paul and Brownwell in 2001. And it's associated with depression and social discrimination because of the shame and the stigma attached to obesity. The three most frequent stigmatizing situations faced were comments from children, like a child coming up to an obese person and saying something like, you are fat. Other people making negative assumptions about the obese person having low expectations of them because of their weight and encountering physical barriers of that obese person, you know, not being able to sit into seats at restaurants, theater, and other public places, or not being able to find the clothes that fit. So concerning gender status, there are mixed findings in the literature on whether men 
and women experience weight-based stigma the same way, but how can these stigmatizing situations be managed? You talked a little bit about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there are ways in thinking about how to address the stigma. And this is certainly not an area where I have a lot of expertise, but just in thinking about, for instance, from the medical community, there has to be um, a way of emphasizing more education for healthcare providers around just the complexity of obesity and trying to reduce the bias that can develop for providers and how we work with patients with obesity. I think for me, one of the biggest things to think about, you know, in working with patients is again, really emphasizing that just because you lose weight, it's not necessarily going to stay off because of how your body changes with weight loss. And so the emphasis really is a lot on wellness and thinking about how do you center healthy lifestyle choices in your life and make those easier to do as, as easy as possible without thinking as much about the weight piece as opposed to the wellness piece. But bringing that into the medical field, bringing that into medical education, really emphasizing the role of stigma in obesity-related outcomes. Like you mentioned, depression and obesity are intricately linked, and there probably is a, a large part of that may relate to the stigma associated with having obesity. And it's a bi-directional relationship with even if you develop depression, you are at, at risk of developing obesity. But if you have obesity, you're at risk of developing depression. And so we need to really bring those, that educational component into how we teach clinicians and how we train clinicians. You know, the exponential increase in the incidence of obesity has been over the past 60 years. Obesity is a long-term chronic disease. But unlike other chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease or respiratory diseases, obesity is not a silent killer due to its external physical manifestations, weight gain and increased girth. And due to these external manifestations, it is one of the easiest to detect conditions and allows the patient to have a considerable amount of time to prevent further complications. So apart from the obvious, what else can you talk about the etiology of obesity? What causes this condition, even though it might be obvious, you know, and we talked about some of it, but can you just summarize to us the etiology of obesity? So part of it is, again, related to biology. Part of it is related to the social and, and environmental factors that put you at risk for obesity. Part of it is related to the psychological and psychosocial factors that promote stress that can lead to obesity. We haven't talked as much about the biology, but we know again that the risk starts in utero in the, in the womb, but that even from a genetic standpoint, you can be at higher risk for obesity based on what your family, your genes are throughout your, your family line. 
but even things like the microbiome, the, the bacteria that live within your gut and in your intestines and in your gastrointestinal system, that may play a role in promoting your risk for obesity. When we go from biology to more environmental and social factors, we know that our lives have become much more sedentary and those populations who go through transition from more of a rural and agricultural economy to more of an industrial economy, that as people become more sedentary in that, that puts them at risk for obesity. So some of the factors we haven't necessarily talked about, but I think are important to emphasize is that even think factors like sleep can really play a role in your risk for obesity. So if you're not getting the appropriate amount of sleep, if you have sleep-related disorders like sleep apnea, those can be related to obesity, but lack of sleep and lack of quality sleep can put you at risk for developing obesity. Mm, well, so essentially fat deposition, like getting fat around your body over the years has been an adaptive physiologic process of energy storage. You know, so over the years, people accumulated fat to store energy, but this has become maladaptive, like when technological advances altered the balance between availability of food and the body's expenditure of energy. Like you alluded to a little bit, after the technological advances of the 18th century, agricultural revolution came into place where a gradual increase in the available amount, quality and variety of food was evident. So once dependent on plants and games that you know, hunters used, hungry humans today have access to endless delicacies from all over the world with minimal energy expenditure to obtain them by simply walking to the refrigerator or driving to a store. This mechanism over time for obesity, did the mechanism ever serve a purpose in the history of humanity? I would say that the energy storage that happens by maintaining a certain weight and having obesity certainly favors health and in, in that having energy stores provide you with the fuel that you need in many ways to fight against infection, to fight off predators. So prehistorically, there was benefit to having certain amount of fat stores. And even we know for women, you need a certain amount of fat store for having a regular menstrual cycle. So you know that especially women who have limited body fat, they can actually stop having regular periods because of that. And so there is certainly an importance to having a certain amount of fat stores. And as you mentioned, as we've become more sedentary in the lifestyles that we lead, but also now that energy dense food is much more accessible and our dietary patterns have changed as we now have more access to ultra processed foods that can certainly and have been shown to promote obesity, that adaptation of storing energy is now even more maladaptive or in the environment that we're living in. 
Thank you. You know, data from the 2018 National Health Interview Survey shows that just under 52% of U.S. adults have at least one of 10 selected chronic conditions, arthritis, cancer, chronic obstructive airway disease, coronary heart disease, asthma, diabetes, hepatitis, high blood pressure, stroke, or weak or failing kidneys. A little over 27% of U.S. adults had multiple chronic conditions. And the highest prevalence of chronic conditions was seen in women, non-Hispanic white adults, and adults over 65 and those living in rural areas. Obesity indeed does set the stage for subsequent health issues and diseases. Can you just give us a short rebuff on that? Those statistics that you mentioned really highlight that obesity is, is intricately connected to these chronic conditions. Not Again, not just cardiovascular disease, but also cancer, arthritis, diabetes, asthma, liver disease, what we call non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and even can relate to blood pressure and pulmonary diseases. And so it also highlights that those who are most vulnerable to the effects of obesity are those that live in the more resource limited areas in, in communities. And so if you think of areas that are more rural or populations that have less resources, older individuals, racial ethnic minority populations, those are populations that are most likely to be exposed to more adverse social determinants of health and they are put at higher risk for developing obesity. So for our listeners out there, we're talking to Dr. Tiffany Powell-Wiley, U.S. obesity expert. So thank you. We have questions from some of the medical students that are listening to this podcast. So this question is from Shubham, S-H-U-B-A-M. He's one of the medical students working at our center. And he says, besides dietary modifications and exercise regimens, are there any pharmacologic drugs that may be used to lose weight? And he asked that metformin is currently used in diabetics and patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it helps manage their BMI, maybe as a secondary benefit. But are there other drugs or affordable medications that can be used to lose weight? So certainly, I think one of the biggest areas of excitement right now is the development of drugs that were developed for diabetes that are now hold a lot of promise in treating obesity. And so these drugs are called GLP-1 agonists. Semaglutide is one example, but there's um, in recent data, for instance, that just came out from the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions that shows that one of those GLP-1 agonists can lead to as much as a 20% reduction in body weight. And so they're very promising in not only reducing body weight, but having improved effects on diabetes, but also other cardiovascular risk factors and reducing cardiovascular disease mortality. And so I think we're now at a time where there may be drugs that may be as effective as what we see with bariatric surgery. And so those hopefully will 
get to the market sooner rather than later, but also we'll be able to replicate those types of findings across different populations. And should there be laws made to combat obesity pandemic? For example, would it be ethical to place heavier taxes on unhealthy junk food? Should we also be targeting the unhealthy food industry? So Shubon is a young medical student and he has these questions. <laughs> so, you know, I think from a policy standpoint, we really need to think about how do we make it easier to live a healthy lifestyle? And so I wouldn't say that it's just about taxing foods or targeting the food industry, but it, a lot of it is really making it so that the environments that we live in are, have allow us to have access to, to healthy options. So again, making it so in neighborhoods have access to green space to and safe streets and safe sidewalks so that people can walk in their neighborhoods, that we address what is happening with the gun violence epidemic so that people feel safe in their communities, that we think about making it so that people have access to healthy foods, especially if they don't live near their large grocery stores, can they get access to those foods in um, local corner stores? And those are policies that can happen, not just you know from a federal level, but really can happen at a local government level. And that answers his third question. He had questions about you know, access to fitness centers or physiotherapy centers. But his fourth question was, without interventions for obesity, where do you see this obesity epidemic heading in the future? So, yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, I think if we don't really get a handle on, on treatment and making big public health changes and, and developing interventions that work, but also making sure that these drugs that work and these treatments like bariatric surgery, making those accessible, because we know, of course, that bariatric surgery works in addressing obesity. We are going to be a sicker nation that dies at a young at younger ages. So as I spoke about earlier, that you know, cardiovascular mortality has leveled off, but it's going to go up as people develop heart disease at younger ages, and we're going to affect overall mortality in the US. And that's seeing, I mean, we're seeing sort of hints of that with some data that came out before the um, pandemic as far as where life expectancy was heading for the US. And so I think if we don't get a handle on what is happening with obesity and diabetes and those two kind of working together, we will, again, see life expectancy continue to go down. We're going to be sicker at younger ages, unfortunately. And, you know, we cannot talk about obesity without COVID, you know. Mm -hmm. There are numerous studies showing that obesity leads to more severe cases of COVID-19 and data showing that obesity worsened during the pandemic. There's a recent study that showed that 48% of Americans gained weight during the pandemic and those who were overweight before COVID were also gained more weight. Depression and anxiety were strong predictors of weight gain, which probably increased independently during the pandemic, especially with all the shutdowns. Why did obesity get worse during an infectious disease COVID pandemic? So why did an obesity problem become more 
during an infectious disease pandemic. We talked a little bit about some of the reasons that things got worse, obesity prevalence went up with the COVID-19 pandemic and that with that intense amount of stress, the depression related to being socially isolated and having family members die of COVID, seeing family members either have COVID or, or die of COVID and really just the trauma of everything that happened over the last two years, that stress promotes risk for obesity. It can promote binge eating, it can promote unhealthy eating, it can make you more sedentary. And then all of those things can play a role in the development of obesity. But just the simple fact of being forced to stay at home for some time can really impact the development of obesity. If you're not able to be as active as you'd like to be, or were in the future, if you know, if your habit was that you walk the stairs at work and you no longer go to work anymore, and you're much more sedentary working from home, all of that can really affect the risk and development of obesity. And so unfortunately, I, I do see that, you know, over the next several years, and hopefully not too many years, but we are going to see an uptick in not just obesity, but also cardiovascular disease rates. And that will again affect life expectancy even more in the U.S. So going back to our questions, in October 27 of 1999 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, published an alarming report about a growing obesity epidemic that threatened the health of millions of Americans. Jeffrey Copeland was the director of the CDC at that time, and one of the authors of the report made this statement, overweight and physical inactivity accounts for more than 300,000 premature deaths each year in the United States second only to tobacco-related deaths. Obesity is an epidemic and should be taken as seriously as an infectious disease epidemic. Despite that alarming report in the late 90s, our obesity rates have continuously climbed higher. So the question, are public health officials talking about obesity enough and acting on making things better? There are so many well-intentioned initiatives, like the former first lady, Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign to curb child obesity. Are we interested really? Are we really committed to improving this obesity epidemic or just incompetent as a nation in improving the social determinants of health for people most at risk for obesity. Why does it seem that what we're doing is not working? You know, the fact that we haven't identified all the specific best practices for addressing the obesity epidemic really highlights the complexity of the epidemic. I do see some glimmers of hope in treatment. I think what we're seeing with the development of pharmacotherapy with drugs for obesity treatment is very exciting and, and has a lot of potential. But even in thinking about interventions, I see that there have been interventions that have worked in reducing obesity risk for children in particular, 
And when we think about more community-based, more interventions that really engage communities, there have been studies that have worked in specific communities in the U.S. to reduce obesity. And so I think it really is about how do we translate some of those interventions to larger swaths of uh, larger populations, larger swaths of the, of the U.S., but also populations around the world. And then, you know, I think the fact that we are really thinking about and talking about social determinants is a big change. And now we're at the point where we really need to figure out interventions that help those living in adverse social environments or with adverse social determinants of health. And really acknowledge that social determinants of health affect all of us. It's not just those who are low resource, but it's all of us have something to benefit when you have access to good schools, to good quality income, to a healthy environment, those types of things. And you mentioned, because uh, just as we close, do we need to promote more medications for obesity, like semaglutide that was recently approved? The medication needs to be affordable, and we know that the U.S., you know, we don't have a good record of making drugs affordable. We also have to consider that studies show that one out of five U.S. adults take a prescription medication that causes mm. weight gain. Even some birth control pills, some birth control option cause mm. weight gain. Mm. So this is very complicated. Mm. And you know, I, I just wanted you to say something towards the medication aspect of this obesity problem? Yeah, no, I think that there's a big policy need for addressing affordability of medications for obesity and really thinking of treatment as a continuum and not just saying, okay, it's all about lifestyle, but for some people, they will benefit from medication. And for other people, the only treatment option may be bariatric surgery, but really making both medications much more accessible, much more affordable, and making bariatric surgery accessible for individuals as well. It makes no sense to me, you know, as someone who's taking care of patients with obesity, that there are medications that are available and affordable for diabetes, but if that same medication is used to treat obesity, it is not paid for by insurance. And I think how do we really need to figure out how do we address that as a medical community? So we have been fortunate today to talk to Dr. Tiffany Power Wiley, MD, MPH, an obesity research expert, the principal investigator at the Power Wiley Lab. Dr. Power Wiley, thank you so much for coming. I'm going to get a closing remark from you. But before we do that, I do see an action picture in the background, an action figure in the background. <laughs> who is that action figure and who does it belong to? <laughs> so that is Voltron. Okay. Um, and so during the pandemic, the things that me and my family got into, so I have a seven-year-old son. And so one of the things that we got into were Legos and mm. we built that during the beginning of the pandemic. So um, we've built many other things, but 
This is my second Zoom call today. And this is the second time somebody mentioned it. So apparently it definitely draws people's attention. So it looks very well constructed. It was, yeah, it took us a long time to build it, but it was fun to do. Thank you. So just in closing, I just want to say thank you from the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation to you for coming to Cocoa Pods podcast. This is such an important topic and you, I believe you really did justice to this topic. So thank you so much for coming. And if you wanted to give us any closing remarks, you know, I sure. would say I, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. And, and I would just, you know, highlight again, the complexity of what we're talking about, that obesity as a health condition, as a disease is, is complex. And there are a lot of ways that we need to think about addressing it. We need to think about the stigma related to it. And, but we also need to think about the clinical and public health interventions that we can do to help people live a healthier lifestyle and make the healthy choices, the easier choices. So thank you again. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you.